640, and continuing all the way to 643, page 640, but continuing on then to 643, Ezra, chapters 5 and 6. You'll find it on your large print sheet, uh, where uh, you'll see if you're using a large print sheet, you actually have to turn it over, uh, because this is... Uh, a lengthy passage today. Ezra chapter 5 Ezra chapter 5 we'll be reading chapters 5 and 6 of Ezra. Hear now the word of God. Then the prophet Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Iddo, prophets, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. So Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Jozadak, rose up and began to build the house of God, which is in Jerusalem, and the prophets of God were with them, helping them. At the same time, Tatanai, the governor of the region beyond the river, and Shethar Bosnai and their companions came to them and spoke thus to them, Who has commanded you to build this temple and finish this wall? Then, accordingly, we told them the names of the men who were constructing this building. But the eye of their God was upon the elders of the Jews, so that they could not make them cease till report could go to Darius. Then a written answer was returned concerning this matter. This is a copy of the letter that Tatanai sent. The governor of the region beyond the river and Shetharth Bosnai and his companions the Persians who were in the region beyond the river to Darius the king, they sent a letter to him in which was written thus, to Darius the king, all peace, let it be known to the king that we went into the province of Judea, to the temple of the great God, which is being built with heavy stones and timbers being laid in the walls, and this work goes on diligently and prospers in their hands. Then we asked those elders and spoke thus to them, Who commanded you to build this temple and to finish these walls? We also asked them their names to inform you that we might write the names of the men who were chief among them. And thus they returned us an answer saying, We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth, and we are rebuilding the temple that was built many years ago which a great king of Israel built and completed. But because our fathers provoked the God of heaven to wrath, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the Chaldean, who destroyed this temple and carried the people away to Babylon. However, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, King Cyrus issued a decree to build this house of God. Also the gold and silver articles of the house of God which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple that was in Jerusalem and carried into the temple of Babylon, those King Cyrus took from the temple of Babylon 
and they were given to one named Sheshbazar, whom he had made governor. And he said to him, Take these articles, go, carry them to the temple site that is in Jerusalem, and let the house of God be rebuilt on its former site. Then the same Sheshbazar came and laid the foundation of the house of God which is in Jerusalem. But from that time even until now it has been under construction and it is not finished. Now therefore, if it seems good to the king, let a search be made in the king's treasure house which is there in Babylon, whether it is so that a decree was issued by King Cyrus to build this house of God at Jerusalem and let the king send us his pleasure concerning this matter. Then King Darius issued a decree, and a search was made in the archives where the treasures were stored in Babylon. And at Akmetha, in the palace that is in the province of Media, a scroll was found, and in it a record was written thus. In the first year of King Cyrus, King Cyrus issued a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem. Let the house be rebuilt, the place where they offered sacrifices, and let the foundations of it be firmly laid, its height 60 cubits, and its width 60 cubits, with three rows of heavy stones and one row of new timber. Let the expenses be paid from the king's treasury. Also let the gold and silver articles of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took from the temple which is in Jerusalem and brought to Babylon, be restored and taken back to the temple which is in Jerusalem, each to its place, and deposit them in the house of God. Now therefore, Tatanai, governor of the region beyond the river, and Shethar Bosnai, and your companions, the Persians, who are beyond the river, keep yourselves far from there. Let the work of this house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews build this house of God on its site. Moreover, I issue a decree as to what you shall do for the elders of these Jews, for the building of this house of God. Let the cost be paid at the king's expense from taxes on the region beyond the river. This is to be given immediately to these men so that they are not hindered. And whatever they need, young bulls, rams, and lambs for the burnt offerings of the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, and oil, according to the request of the priests who are in Jerusalem, let it be given them day by day without fail, that they may offer sacrifices of sweet aroma to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. Also, I issue a decree that whoever alters this edict, let a timber be pulled from his house and erect it and let him be hanged on it. And let his house be made a refuse heap because of this. And may the God who causes his name to dwell there destroy any king or people who put their hand to alter it or to destroy this house of God which is in Jerusalem. I, Darius, issue a decree. Let it be done diligently. Then Tatanai, governor of the region beyond the river, Shethar Bosnai, and their companions diligently did according to what King Darius had sent. So the elders of the Jews built, and they prospered through the prophesying Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Iddah. And they built and finished it, 
according to the commandment of the God of Israel and according to the command of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. Now the temple was finished on the third day of the month of Adar, which is in the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. Then the children of Israel, the priests and the Levites, and the rest of the descendants of the captivity celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. And they offered sacrifices at the dedication of this house of God. 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats, according to the number of the tribes of Israel. They assigned the priests to their divisions and the Levites to their divisions over the service of God in Jerusalem, as it is written in the book of Moses. And the descendants of the captivity kept the Passover on the 14th day of the first month. For the priests and the Levites had purified themselves. All of them were ritually clean. And they slaughtered the Passover lambs for all the descendants of the captivity, for their brethren the priests, and for themselves. Then the children of Israel who had returned from the captivity ate together with all who had separated themselves from the filth of the nations of the land in order to seek the Lord God of Israel. And they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy. For the Lord made them joyful and turned the heart of the king of Assyria toward them to strengthen their hands in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. Well, beloved people of God, today we look at these two chapters, Ezra 5 and 6, second of a two-part series on this general section of scripture in which God triumphs over his enemies in the rebuilding of the temple. God triumphs over his enemies in the rebuilding of the temple. This is the last part of the first section of Ezra. So the first six chapters form we might say the, the uh, first act, if we're doing it in terms of a play. It's sort of the first act. So, Lord willing, next week we'll get to the second act. Of course, each act has a number of scenes in them. But the first act here is chapters 1 through 6. And so this, then, is the last part of that first act, or that first section. Now, in chapter 4, you remember, just prior to chapter 5, we see that the scene was rather dismal because the opposition had come, the opponents, the enemies had come, and had, uh, uh, had uh, persuaded the people um, to uh, cease working on the house of God, uh, particularly because they tattled on them, as we know, to uh, King Artaxerxes. They tattled on, on them, and the king sent back this answer saying that he was going to stop the rebuilding of this temple. And so things were rather dismal as a result of that. And uh, then now in chapters 5 and 6, we continue to have this very careful historical account. Matter of fact, uh, these are official Persian documents that are being referenced here in these two chapters. 
As we mentioned last week, there's also the use of Aramaic, which is a it's a language that is like sort of like Hebrew. It's it's similar to Hebrew, and um, so starting in chapter four, verse eight, all the way through chapter six, verse eighteen, we this is one of the uh, lengthy uh, one of there are only about three or four passages in the Old Testament, including in uh, Daniel, uh, in Aramaic. This is the lengthiest of those passages. Now, I said a moment ago, in terms of this careful historical account, um, y'all know that I uh, uh, am a historian, and I used to tell my college classes, you just have not lived until you have gone down into the sub-basement in Manhattan with these um, uh, you know, down st uh, metal steps, steep metal steps down into the sub-basement, maybe two stories down, uh, with these um, um, shelves, these metal shelves there. The only light being uh, like from uh, you know, some single incandescent bulbs there as you go down. It's almost like being an Indiana Jones movie or something, you know. It's, you sort of get that sense to it. But you've never lived until you've done that and either literally or figuratively blown off the dust from old documents that have not seen the light of day for maybe a hundred years or more and discover something that somebody hasn't thought about for a century or more. There is an excitement to discovering something like that. Again, history is not boring. Historians can be boring. History textbooks can be boring. History is not boring. And I hope that you caught something of the excitement here, something of the intrigue here in, with regard to the discovery, uh, matter of fact, uh, of, of this document. Matter of fact, you'll notice uh, last week we end, uh, deliberately did not read chapter 6. I wanted to, to keep you hanging, so to speak. It's kind of like stay tuned till next week. Except this is not Batman or, or some other TV show like that. This is real. This is history. Verse, the very end of chapter 5. Let the king send us his pleasure concerning this matter. We're kept hanging. And now we come to the resolution of that in chapter 6. Well, last week we did mention the, uh, the spur to action in terms of chapter 5, the prophetic call through Haggai and Zechariah. We had done a series on Haggai, and then I gave an overview of the prophecy of Zechariah last time. Notice the concerted action, the leaders that is say, the civil and ecclesiastical or church leaders working together. And of course, in doing so, reflecting the threefold office of Jesus Christ, the prophets, Jesus is the prophet, and of course, the, the priest, the ecclesiastical side, and then the king, the civil side. Christ is prophet, priest, and king. And so their work began, they, as they began again, to build the house of God at Jerusalem. But then there was the objection. Notice the crisis then in chapter 5. 
the, the confrontation. What are you doing? Here come the bureaucrats. What are you doing? And then the courage as the Jews gave answer and kept right on working. And then the letter that is sent to Darius the king. What is your judgment in this matter? And so now we come to chapter 6 today in which we see the victory. The victory. And so, of course, this victory comes about First of all, by means of the search. First, made in Babylon in the royal archives where the treasures were kept. But it wasn't found there. So they had to keep looking. And the document was finally found at Akmitha. Now this was probably the summer capital. And Darius shows persistence in finding it. You see, they had bureaucracy back then as well. And so the document was found. And then, what is this document? It's a decree by Cyrus, or a memorandum. By the way, this decree, starting in verse 3, this memorandum, this memo, demonstrated the truthfulness of the Jews. And uh, notice the dimensions there, interestingly, not to exceed 60 by 60 cubits. A cubit is a foot and a half. So 90 by 90. And the stone and the wood, by the way, stone and the wood in the same ratio as with Solomon and the building of the temple by him. So they found the document. And now we see the letter from Darius. Darius respected Cyrus. And so that's one reason why Darius was undoubtedly willing to to follow what this prior decree was. That's at least one aspect to it. Also, he wanted to do the politically expedient thing. He didn't want a rebellious bunch of Jews out here in Palestine. If he could keep them happy, that was good. And so he wanted to do what was politically expedient. But he also wanted to do the right thing. It was only right to allow the work to continue. Uh, Notice here uh, the honor that is given to the God of heaven uh, and also to his ministers. Uh, God is previously uh, referred to as the God of heaven. And so now this is what he says here in verse 7. Let the work of this house of God alone Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews build this house of God on its site. And it's been noticed, it's been noticed that the humblest saints' prayers should be feared by the earth's monarchs and their prayers for the ruler's safety should be coveted. Notice that's that's what they Uh, what he says here in verse 10, that they may offer sacrifices of sweet aroma to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. And so there is at least a measure of piety here uh, in terms of Darius. So he, he orders them, first of all, 
don't bother them, stay away, let it proceed. And of course, you even have more things here, don't you? Give them everything they need. Verse 9, whatever they need. Young bulls, rams, lambs for the burnt offerings of the God of heaven. Wheat, salt, wine, and oil. According to the request of the priests who are in Jerusalem, let it be given them day by day without fail, that they may offer sacrifices of sweet aroma and so forth. And now we come to the action. The action then. How do the Persian officials reply or respond to this? Well, they know that they better pay attention to this. Matter of fact, there's even the threat, verse 11. Whoever alters this edict, let a timber be pulled from his house and erect a and be hanged on it. Let his house be made a refuse heap because of this. A dung heap. And so the Persian officials know that they had better obey this decree by Darius. So the Persian officials take action. The elders also take action. Notice verse 14. So the elders of the Jews built... And they prospered through the prophesy of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Iddo. So as you look at this, uh, verse 15, it was finished, the temple is finished on the third month, third day of the month of Adar, which is in the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. So uh, February, March, 515 B.C., that's the date that we're looking at here. February slash March, 515 B.C., or in other words, about four and a half years from when they picked up the rebuilding of the temple. All of this, we are, taught, are told, was according to the command of God and the command of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes. I want to pause just a moment here and and note two or three things. One is they built according to God's direction. That was very important. They built according to God's direction. Secondly, even though God is the one who directed this, human instrumentality was involved. And so there's no contradiction between those two things. And also, the idea of, of this, you'll notice that there was a divine plan to use Persian kings in God's service. And that's exactly what you find here. Well, we then come to the dedication. We then come to the dedication. And this was done with great joy. Verse 16, then the children of Israel, the priests and the Levites, and the rest of the descendants of the captivity celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. It was, there was great joy, rejoicing. Now, the notice that sin offering in this, sin offering is significant. The sin offering is significant. Notice the he goats here, 12 in number, one for each tribe. But all of this was to be done according to the law of Moses. Verse 18, they assigned the priests to their divisions, the Levites to their divisions over the service of God in Jerusalem, as it is written in the book of Moses. And that leads us then to the last few verses in which we have the observation of 
Passover, the observance of Passover, which coincided with this dedication of the temple. Now we know, of course, that Passover originally had to do with the deliverance out of Egypt, the deliverance, the exodus out of Egypt. Here it is in terms of their deliverance out of Babylon to be able to go back into the promised land. But in both cases, Passover the, what had to do symbolically with the deliverance out of sin. So when they are redeemed out of the house of Egypt, it's as if they were redeemed. It's, it's a picture of being redeemed out of sin. And so it is for us when the Lord uh, forgives our sin and, and passes over us, you see, then we are, de- then we are delivered out of our bondage to sin. Now there's also something very interesting here. If you look at uh, verse 21, Then the children of Israel who had returned from the captivity ate together with all who had separated themselves from the filth of the nations of the land in order to seek the Lord God of Israel. And commentators have suggested that this is not simply a reference to the uh, children to, to those who were Jews, but also this had to do with proselytes or those from outside the Jews who repented of their sins and who wanted to identify with the Jews. Those who had separated themselves from the pollutions of heathen idols. This was accomplished ceremonially, of course, by means of circumcision. Today, of course, in the New Covenant, in the New Testament, ceremonially by means of baptism. But all of this was observed with great joy. All of this was observed with great joy. Verse 22, they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy. For the Lord made them joyful and turned the heart of the king of Assyria toward them to strengthen their hands in the work of the house of God the God of Israel. Great joy. Great joy. And of course, when we come to the Lord's table in a few weeks, Lord willing, it's a time of it's a serious of seriousness, a reflection on our sin. But it's also a time of great joy that holy meal of communion. So we see that theme here as well. Now, I want to take a few moments then to make several observations um, on this text and also in the context, also in the context of uh, the book of Ezra. The first observation or set of observations I want to make has to do with the church in society. And the first point under this is in terms of church-state relations. Did you notice that here in our text we have an instance of the state protecting and aiding the church? How shall this be handled? 
how, what should we think of this? Should we call the ACLU perhaps and report it? Is that the proper attitude? Is that the proper way to think of church-state relations, what the ACLU thinks of it? Should that be, re or should, it, should this rather, what we have here, be regarded as normative? Now some might suggest that there's a typological significance to this action by the pagan nation, the pagan king, but the pagan nations are not generally regarded as being typical of Christ. Some suggest that this is simply a, a unique occurrence in light of God's special care for his church in this set of circumstances. However, that position somewhat begs the question, and it also goes contrary to what we find in other passages of Scripture. For example, if you look at Isaiah 49, if you turn to Isaiah 49, Isaiah 49, verses 22 and 23. Isaiah 49, verses 22 and 23. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will lift my hand in an oath to the nations and set up my standard for the peoples. They shall bring your sons in their arms, or bosom, and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. Kings shall be your foster fathers, and their queens your nursing mothers. They shall bow down to you with their faces to the earth and lick up the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord, for they shall not be ashamed who wait for me. Isn't that interesting? So here we have the prophecy of the prophet Isaiah. So that, that gives us uh, some interesting uh, perspective on this, does it not? You see, God providentially uses means, including magistrates, including government officials, in order to accomplish his purposes. Now, my friends, there is a proper separation of church and state. They are not the same institution. They are not the same entity. They have different members. They have different roles to play. And so there is a separation of church and state. But at the same time, even though there is an independence of church and state, there is also an interdependence, an interdependence. There are there are areas of overlap between church and state, or we could even say among the three great spheres of family, church, and state. We think of marriage. All three spheres, although from different perspectives, but all three spheres are concerned with regard to marriage. More than that, the church prays for the state and upon occasion instructs it when it's requested by the civil magistrate to do so, or if there, are, if there are, is an extraordinary example, an extraordinary situation, like, I don't know, maybe the murder of children, for example. The state then defends and defends the church, protects the church, 
as part and, and even maintains the church, properly speaking, as part of the civil government's profession of the true religion. Westminster Larger Catechism, question and answer 191, one of the things we pray for when we pray thy kingdom come is that the civil magistrate would countenance, countenance, give, give attention to, give approval to, and maintain the true religion. And of course, all of this has to do with the fact that allegiance, loyalty, is owed by all to the Lord of heaven and earth. There is no such thing as neutrality. There is no such thing as neutrality. You're either for Christ or you're against him. It's just that simple. And so all of the spheres of society, properly speaking, owe their obedience and their loyalty to King Jesus. So that's the first thing, church-state relations. But also, I want to talk a little bit about the relationship then between the church and the kingdom. And you see, there is a priority to the church. You know that the books of Ezra and Nehemiah have even been combined, have they come together, but Ezra comes before Nehemiah. And that's always the way it is, not simply in terms of the order in scripture, not simply historically speaking, but also theologically speaking. Ezra has to do with the rebuilding of the temple, Nehemiah has to do with the rebuilding of the wall. And so the church comes before the kingdom broadly considered. Or we can say this, preaching the gospel comes before social renovation and moral improvement. So the order is revival, reformation, particularly in the church, and then the reconstruction of society under the lordship of Christ. In all of way, in all of this, the church shows the way. You see, we, we often think, we often, this is the way we usually think. We usually think the world is so bad and the church is just following the world. And that's true many times. But on the other hand, many times the world apes the church. The world follows the church. Many times, there are radical ideas, crazy ideas, wicked ideas, have come out of the church first. And so there's this sort of symbiotic relationship. So the world influences the church, but it is also true the church influences the world. And the church is to have it is to present to the world what true righteousness is. It's to present to the world what true justice is. It's to present to the world what mercy and love are all about. That's the way it's supposed to be. But of course, when you reject the doctrine of God's sovereignty, as many in the church do, you can't expect the society to refrain from bingo or the lottery. And the same is true with other forms with, with various manifestations of hypocrisy. We lament the fact that Walmart is open on the Lord's Day, that there aren't blue laws in effect. 
and yet, and yet, in point of fact, um, <clears throat> how many times do we see Sabbath desecration by Christians? If, if everyone who's a professing Christian kept the Sabbath day, the Southeastern Conference would not play basketball games on the Lord's Day. What about budget deficits as we're drowning in debt in this country? Well, are Christians living responsibly in terms of their finances? We lament Roe versus Wade, which thankfully has been overturned now. But yet abortion still continues, and the populace many times is actually voting in favor of abortion. And yet is it not the case that Christians have themselves gotten abortions? You know, the Southern Baptist Convention in recent years, last 40 years or so, has been very pro-life. But do you know that prior to that, the Southern Baptist Convention allowed for abortion? And so we lament what goes on in our society, but it's hard for us as Christians to point fingers. But let's go a little bit deeper here. Is the problem of society basically a moral one? No, the basic issue is a spiritual one. And joining then with pagans and idolaters will not solve society's moral decay. The emphasis here in the book of Ezra is on the purity and separateness of the people of God. The purity and separateness of the people of God. Some of you may be familiar with um, uh, with uh, Francis Schaeffer, who was a great Christian philosopher of the 20th century. Sometimes he referred to what is called co-belligerency. So we're not allies with those with whom we have fundamental disagreements, but in certain cases we might be co-belligerents. We, we work alongside them. I'm not suggesting, by the way, that co-belligerency is always wrong, and yet, it seems to me that we have to be careful, at the very least, in terms of that. Forty years ago, in Westchester County, New York, I helped lead a pro-life rally on the steps of the courthouse there in White Plains, New York. And I also had gotten a number of evangelical leaders to agree with me on a statement that we submitted, about 50 or 60 of us, that submitted it to the local press, to the local newspaper. But in that open forum, if you will, there was also participation by a Roman Catholic priest. And thinking back on that, it has made me wonder whether or not that was really the right thing to do. One of the things we need to recognize, and especially with regard to the abortion issue, is that many folks are tempted by means of the abortion issue to go in a Roman Catholic direction 
simply because of the Roman Catholic Church being pro-life. And so, as at this, in terms of church and kingdom, we must remember Ezra always comes before Nehemiah. The church shows the way. And we must remember that the crown rights of King Jesus come as a package deal. That it is that the final, in the final analysis, in terms of societal reformation, the issue is the gospel of Christ and being, ac- being understood and accepted and believed and practiced. And then the moral reform will come. So that's the first thing to reflect on in terms of, of uh, the church and society. And then secondly, with regard to salvation. You know, salvation is Trinitarian. It is Trinitarian. We, we have a God who is triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And as you look here at Ezra 5 and 6, we, we can see how that is played out. The Father, the Father is the one who shows his providence over the church. Things are accomplished in God's own time. He is the God of heaven and earth, including his reversing totally the expectations of his enemies. Indeed, his making sure that that dusty document was found in Achmetha. God the Father also preserved the line so that the plan of redemption could be put into effect and so that the Christ could come into the world in order to die for our sins. It is the Father's plan. But what about the Son, the Lord Jesus? As we read today from John chapter 2, he is the true temple. He is the true temple. That to which this temple in Ezra 5 and 6 was pointing forward. But he is the true temple who has come. He is the one who himself was sacrificed because it's not the blood of bulls and goats ultimately that can pardon us of our sin. It was his blood. But all those bulls and goats and lambs They were all pointing forward to his blood at the cross. He is our Passover. And victory over all enemies comes through the cross. He is Christus Victor, Christ the Victorious One. And what about the Spirit? Well, of course, the Spirit is who enabled these prophets to be powerfully called by God. He is the one also, who works joy in the people. He caused his people to rejoice. And part of God's work, part of the benefit of redemption, especially as God triumphs over our enemies, is that whole notion of joy. In Psalm 122, verse 1, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord, the temple. And Psalm 126, when the Lord brought back the captivity of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with singing. 
Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. And we are glad. Those who sow in tears shall reap with joy. He who continually goes forth weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. And so we see then the work of the Holy Spirit, including his giving us joy. And so I end today with a personal application. My friends, you must personally take this message of salvation for yourself. You must personally do that. You must be just like these proselytes, just like these converts, separated from sin and filthiness and joined with God and with his people. And so I call upon you then to embrace this message and to experience the joy that the people of God had here in Ezra chapter 6. Amen. Will you please stand for prayer? And our Father, we pray that we might indeed have the joy of the Holy Ghost, the joy of the Holy Spirit, as he works in our hearts, works the work of grace, enabling us, O God, to rejoice in the salvation that has been brought to us in Christ, and indeed, Lord, that we might hear with the ears of faith the words of the Lord Jesus, who has said to us, let not your heart be troubled. Go and prepare a place for you. And so, Father, give us that joy, even this day, we pray it now.